Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Well, welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. I'm actually really excited to have uh, one of my friends, Dr. John Swiegel, on the show. Now, for those of you that don't know John, now he's been around a while. He, uh, of course, is a gray hair. Uh, he prefers to be called a Q-tip. Um, that's his favorite term. But uh, John is one of the best in the DOE, Department of Energy, intelligence business. Uh, he's now retired. He's now a consultant for the National Strategic Research Institute. And we have the opportunity to work together from time to time on projects. And of course, his specialty is the Russian and Chinese weapons programs. And early in his career, uh, four decades ago, as he was reminding me before the show, he was a plasma physicist who worked on on in the weapons programs at the National Labs, which is where he spent most of his career. And so with that, John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So I asked you to come on because you sent me some slides recently about the Chinese modernization program and what was, you know, what they've been doing. And you and I had talked uh, about these slides, and you had said that you were less impressed with Chinese modernization than you had thought, and that really piqued my interest. And so I definitely wanted to have you on to talk about that. And then just last night, there's a new report out by Bill Gertz talking about all of the espionage that has happened since the 80s uh, regarding the theft of American nuclear warhead designs. So we have a lot to talk about. Now, I want to turn it over to you and ask you to describe for the listeners where the Chinese modernization program is today and where you think there's this sort of magical year that the recent report to Congress from DOD said that 2035 is sort of their culmination year where they'll have their modernization program complete. So where are they now and where are they headed? The headline reporting was early last summer and in short order, three different organizations published analyses in the, in the, uh, on the internet in the open of three new ICBM silo fields being built in China in sort of an arc south of the Mongolian border. Uh, this could be about 300 new ICBM silos. This is a number comparable to the number of silos we retain open. Um, sure, sure. And 
each of the missiles in there is expected to be their new ICBM, the DF-41. It's a big guy. It's roughly the diameter of our old MX Peacekeeper missile. So people talk about three to 10 warheads on it. Uh, I am not optimistic about this or pessimistic about the 10 warhead number. I think it'll be a number more like three with penades with larger warheads than we had for the old Peacekeeper. So if it's three, you're talking about a thousand new ICBM warheads. And that's the headline number. Now, to continue, uh, this is new news. One could say, well, fine. The intelligence community has known about this. They knew that they saw this coming. And that may well be, but not by much, I believe. And there's two pieces of evidence that suggest this. Number one, if you look at the yearly DOD report to Congress on China, congressionally mandated, go back to 20, go back to the 2020 report. And they were talking about four to 500 warheads and kind of an evolutionary increase in the number of warheads. Following year, I have a strong suspicion the report was already in draft when these new internet reports began to come out about the new silos. And because it had the look when you read it of something that was added in almost in proof. Um, but there they said, well, we now we expect maybe 700 warheads by 2027 and a thousand warheads by 2030. This year, the report comes out again, and now they're saying, well, by 2035, which is a magic date for Xi Jinping, we expect 1,500. You can do this math. This is easy math. And if you look at the time intervals, this is a steady increase of 100 warheads a year. There's no projected increase in that rate of 100 warheads per year, one could ask if that number is going to increase because these ICBMs aren't the only thing they've got. They've got intermediate range ballistic missiles, medium range. They've got submarine launched ballistic missiles and they're building a stealth bomber that's close to deployment. But uh, as of today, these are the numbers that we're looking at. And the evidence is that this is relatively new news uh, even for the, the U.S. military community. Now, you and Chris Yaw wrote uh, an article that's, I think it'll be released, uh, the Countering WMD Journal, uh, that'll be coming out in the next week or so, where y'all yeah. reevaluate the number of plutonium pits that the Chinese could produce compared to previous estimates. And yes. this is this, you know, this estimation of pit production has been one of the major reasons why the intelligence community, the IC, has maintained such a small number over the years. Because I've often thought that my understanding of the Chinese was such that I didn't think that the that the IC's numbers were accurate. I thought they were way too low. And given the recalcitrance and the unwillingness of the Chinese to be open, or at least to the degree the Russians have, I've thought that we've underestimated it. And your 
you know, your article, you say, Hey, they've had the capability to produce a lot more. And so I wonder if we're just now seeing sort of the, the more overt efforts on part on the part of the Chinese where they're now trying to signal the United States and say, Hey, listen, you know, we've done this stuff covertly before. Now we want you to know because we're getting ready to make a move on Taiwan and we want you to be effectively deterred. Let's go to the last point first. Sure. And on that last point, what message do they mean to send? And I suspect that one possibility, and I've seen no I've seen no statement, or if there is a statement, I haven't read it. Uh, my suspicion is that they mean to get to the point where we are with Russia, which is that we have a strategic nuclear parity. So that in a sense, because of the apocalyptic nature of strategic nuclear use, uh, people justifiably are extraordinarily extremely uh, reluctant to get to that point. And it almost puts a, a, an umbrella, a strategic nuclear umbrella uh, over the problem. And one can kind of take that off the table by getting to parity. And then we get to the issue of, well, can you operate at a non-strategic level below that? So what's the message? And I think that the message is that our former nuclear superiority no longer holds and that if in any way we attempted to or intended to capitalize on that, uh, that option's going away. So that's the second point. The first point is, is the numbers. I, I'm, I'm less skeptical than you of the historical estimates of the numbers of nuclear weapons. But there was an outstanding issue uh, or an unanswered question about do they currently have enough nuclear material uh, to continue to kind of open-ended or at least dramatically increase the number of nuclear weapons. So that the the reanalysis that we did of the amount of plutonium they would have for pits really put put us between two estimates that are out there uh, in an open source sense. So on the one end, we had uh, Zhang He, who's at uh, the Belfer Center, former Chinese uh, nuclear weapons scientist who works at uh, the Belfer Center up at Harvard. He had a relatively low number. And we had um, Victor Yesen, and a collaborator in Russia who had a very large number. So I went back, we went back, reanalyzed the information and you, on Chinese production. There were two sites, um, one up, one up north, one in the uh, toward the south. If you can see, my dog here is wishing to join. Uh, so. Uh, and, you, you know, really to get an idea, there, there is some Chinese documentation about what happened. The second thing is that there are, you can go back and see some blog uh, reporting 
from people who used to work at these locations. And going back and re-examining Zhang's assumptions, we got a number, it would appear, and we used Zhang's numbers for how much plutonium per weapon. He said at the low end, maybe four kilograms. At the upper end, you know, six, kind of like six and change, uh, kind of like Fat Man, which was an old design style. And if you use those numbers, they could could make over a thousand pits for modern nuclear weapons. And um, that's a bigger number than Zhang had. It's a much smaller number than Victor Yesen had. And to me, some of his assumptions, he used undocumented uh, commentaries from Russians he knew, apparently, who had worked with the Chinese. And some of his assumptions and the numbers didn't hold up for me. So I, we're kind of happy where we are in this number. That doesn't get you to 1,500. But look, they're, they're, building, they're building breeder reactors. Breeder reactors are made for making reactor-grade plutonium, but there are ways to operate them that you could make weapons-grade different new different isotopics in the weapons. And so there's the possibility then that they'll be able to produce more. They are building a new uh, reprocessing plant up near the location of their original reprocessing plant. So they they will in time when they need it have the capacity, I believe, to make the plutonium that they'll need for these weapons by the time they need it. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting look at it. So as you, as you look at sort of this overall picture uh, with sort of a pervasive program of espionage to steal our designs, uh, the development of, uh, you know, silos and new missiles and looking at, you know, some of the, the DF-41 and the the newer ICBMs and the CEPs that they're, you know, they're, they're getting much more accurate. Uh, they're reducing yields on their warheads. So that's, you know, that's a very clear sign of accuracy. How do you see the Chinese thinking and operating in, in the years ahead? You know, now, and let me let me not act like ICBMs are the only thing. Sure. They do have half a dozen 12-tube uh, submarines that can launch submarine-launched ballistic missiles, nuclear-armed. They are in the process of improving those missiles to get to a generation of development that would would be significant to us. They do have theater range ballistic missiles that are very provocative in that they have um, in that they have swappable warheads. So we'll lose the ability. It's one thing with an ICBM and you see it and you say, okay, that's nuclear. It's another thing entirely. And the Russian systems are dual capable. Uh, as well. It's another thing entirely when you're like, well, how many of these are nuclear? So where where are they going? I would believe 
once again, they would like to get to a point where we have this strategic nuclear standoff. We're not in a superior position. So it at least um, the advantage shifts back to the middle there. And then the uh, second thing is with the strategic nuclear weapons, if they need to, uh, if they need to operate uh, in that realm, well, they'll have the the non-strategic nuclear weapons on the in the on the intermediate range and and medium range ballistic missiles. What are they trying to do? They would like to get themselves to where the we are with the Russians. So, for example. NATO was very careful all the way along with Ukraine to say, we don't have an Article 5 issue here. They're not members of NATO. We're not going to get pulled into Ukraine. Then from time to time, Vladimir Putin chooses to, to voice a nuclear threat and people get shook up. And uh, they would like to, I presume, have that ability if they need it. Look, it appears to be that this is about Taiwan. And if this is about Taiwan, they would like to have enough, the right kind of nuclear force, that if this can be done conventionally, they would like to have the freedom to do it conventionally. And even though U.S. first use to avoid a loss in a conflict is extremely unlikely, they don't want to have to take that chance. So I think that's where it, it gets them. A lot of this deterrence, I've thought about this. You know, a lot of deterrence is people, people who are amateurs in the business, they jump right to war. And they don't think about all of the maneuvering and the pressure that goes with the possession and movement of nuclear weapons if necessary. And a lot of this deterrence at this level it's kind of like watching sumo wrestling. <laughs> Two great big sweaty guys pushing on each other, pushing and pushing and pushing and grunting. And all of a sudden, one guy's out of the ring and it's over. Yeah. And if you're a Western guy like me, you're watching this and you're like, wow, how many more of these matches before we can go home? <laughs> and you're sitting next to a fan, you know, a Japanese guy who's a fan and he's like riveted. And that's what, that's what this deterrence game is like. It's riveting, and you can guarantee it's got the, the experts' attention, and they're giving it a great deal of attention and factoring things in. Um, but that's kind of how it works, uh, the deterrence business. Now, I have more to say, but that's kind of you know my immediate response to your question. Well, so we're about halfway through the show, so let's take a quick break. We're talking to John Swiegel. You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join Nuclecast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, 
and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeter.org slash NucleCast. Okay, so we're back uh, with John Swiegel. We're talking about sumo wrestling as a metaphor for nuclear deterrence. And, uh, of course, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but now that I do, as always, you make me laugh, John. I appreciate that. Uh, so uh, let, let me throw let me throw another idea at you. Yep. And so I think... Because I've wondered why the Chinese are building as large of a strategic nuclear force as they are. And the reason I say that is because as I think about Russia and China and the United States, given geography, for the United States, everything is an away game. So we really need strategic nuclear weapons to, to try to maintain stable nuclear deterrence. Whereas for, for Russia, it's really a regional game. They really need to re- to deter the Chinese. I mean, probably one of the, the top one or two most likely instances in which a nuclear war almost happened was between Russia and China and what, 62 or three. Um, and then So they have to deter the Chinese, and that's a regional fight. So they don't necessarily need strategic nuclear weapons. They can use, you know, intermediate or, you know, medium-range ballistic missiles or other weapons, cruise missiles, bombers, regional bombers. Or, or, you know, for the Russians, they you know, Europe, that's an even closer game where they also need short, medium-range weapons to, to maintain deterrence there. And then for the Chinese, they have the same Russia problem. And then they just need to keep us out of the first and second island chains. So they also don't necessarily have to have a large strategic nuclear force. And then their targeting approach is it's, you know, it's not a counter force strategy. It's a counter value strategy. So they even, even fewer. So as I look at, as I think about this, and then I look at, well, why are they focusing on building a, you know, sort of a comparative arsenal to the U S and Russia and not building a really robust, you know, set of battlefield theater tactical, if you want to call it that nuclear weapons, sort of like the Russians have done. I'm I'm a bit confused as to why they're taking the approach they're taking other than they think that that's what it takes to deter us when they make a move on Taiwan. I think it's that latter there. You know, it's an interesting thing. Um, let me let me just go back to the idea of what have they stolen? If the Chinese were not attempting to steal nuclear information from us, it would be the only important economic case where they haven't. Uh, Pursuit of foreign 
foreign knowledge and technology is a standard, you know, this is a state, many of the, of the elements of their economy are state-owned, not everything, but of the ones that are state-owned, it is typically part of the strategy just as a just as a doctoral student does a literature search before writing a dissertation, uh, searching for information about what other people are doing and how they're doing it is a standard matter of practice for them. The fact that it runs over into theft, once again, they wouldn't be the first country whose intelligence services were stealing important information sure. from us. So there is that. It's, uh, I mean, the matter is the degree to which it's affected what they're doing. Now, back to why, back to why they are trying to match us in the way, in this way. There is an element, and you can see this if you look across multiple technologies. But there can be an element of the imitative in the Chinese approach. If it's good for them. Well, let's look at it and decide why they think it's good. And okay, I'm convinced. I think it's good for me too. But I do think there is there is strategic value in the standoff, even if your most likely use is regional. Having that strategic standoff at the upper level to keep it from going that way and from being in a disadvantageous position if it does, I believe strategically one can make the case that that's valuable to do that. And again, they do have, they don't, they have nowhere near as many non-strategic nuclear weapons as the Russians. Uh, But for the theater, they have more than we do. Sure. We are, we're, we're deciding once again, uh, we're the, the nuclear arms, uh, what is it? Submarine launch cruise missile. The U S has had it on again, off again relationship with that. And it tends to swing with the parties without, without judging that decision. It's on and off between the parties. And right now, uh, Angus King of Maine in the Senate, and there's a congressman, I believe it's the congressman from Ohio, are keeping the budget line open with a minimum level of research on the uh, on the slicker man. So what have we got in theater? Um, I think we're, I mean, if we needed non-strategic nuclear, or if we needed nuclear weapons in the theater, we'd be flying strategic bombers out there from the U.S., B-21s eventually with uh, long-range cruise missiles. And that's, and again, don't don't jump right to the idea of war, but the idea of what you would do, what each side would do, and the knowledge that each side has of what they would do is an important element of deterrence. Yeah, it's, it's, um, so, Rob Spaulding, Brigadier General retired, who was, he was the defense attache in Beijing for a while. He's a B-2 pilot. Uh, He's written a couple of books on the Chinese, and he's focused mostly on sort of their technology and their approach to warfare. But he's got a new book that came out three, three to six months ago 
that is, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, the title of the book, but he, he basically does an analysis of unrestricted warfare. The, you yeah. know, the, the book that two colonels wrote back in 1999, that basically has laid the way for Chinese strategy over the last two decades. And what is, what's really interesting about it is the relevance of what those officers wrote 20 years ago, 1996, well, actually it was 97. So 25 years ago to what they're actually doing today and the consistency in Chinese strategy over long periods of time that is, is, you know, it's very different from the way we think about it. We're very Clausewitzian, you know, the ideas is to, you know, to concentrate force at the, at the critical point of attack. And when you do that, it's force on force. Whereas for the Chinese, you want to defeat them before you ever fight them. And so the Chinese understood, and this is what the two colonels wrote about was, you know, don't, don't try to face the United States head on. You can beat them in other ways. And in, in formatized warfare was one of the, the key concepts that they had. And, and it seems to be very much this way that they're, it's almost death by a thousand cuts, which is in many respects, what, what we're, you know, feeling today as they've taken over international institutions, as they've, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative and how they've shaped governments. And, you know, one of the things that they're doing throughout the Asia Pacific, particularly in the smaller nations, is they export Chinese nationals who become citizens, who then become voters, who then reshape the politics in those countries to become much more friendly to the PRC. And so they've got all of these efforts ongoing. But the one thing that they haven't been able to really do, and and they're sort of suffering from the same challenge as the Russians, is that technologically they have to, you know, they rely on stealing from us to try to sort of keep up that it's not indigenous development. It's maybe there's some indigenous use of our stolen technology and there's, they're, they're trying to do their own thing, but there's a heavy reliance on the U S do you see them ever being able, I mean, you're a weapons physicist. Do you see them as being able to create and surpass the U S in these leading technologies, both for, you know, whether it's, weapons physics or whether it's artificial intelligence or whether it's quantum computing, because they all play a role in the success or failure of nuclear deterrence and command and control and space-based integrated tactical warning and attack assessment. I mean, how do you see all these things fitting together and and where the Chinese are going to be able to go? Number one, um, I would say don't count on this idea that we are always going to be superior and that we are always superior. I'll give you an example. And it's, it's taken from another, another piece of my career years ago when I worked at Sandia labs, a friend of mine came to me and he said, would you help me with a microwave experiment? Would you do some plasma theory back when I was, you know, an honest worker. <laughs> and what, would you do some calculations for me? And I did the calculations. We published a paper and uh, I published a couple more papers and 
you know, the papers went well. And a guy asked me to help him teach at UCLA. And it went on and on. I'm teaching in Europe on microwaves. I've taught in China. And, um, and it is an area of expertise for me. And I can tell you this. I went to China in the mid-90s by invitation, spoke at uh, an institute in uh, Beijing, and I went back in 2008 speaking in Xi'an at an international, in advance of an international conference. And my friend and I are teaching a four-day, three or four-day course, and we're thinking, oh, this will be great. This will be fun. And like 80 Chinese show up. And I would say that in that period of time, the Chinese are doing some of the most innovative high power microwave source development of, uh, of anybody in the world. They're putting enormous resources on it, apparently based on the number of students. Uh, we all know their kids get better SAT scores than ours. And, um, and what I'm saying is, they look, they have the intellectual horsepower to do this. I believe that the Chinese, if they put the resources on these things, uh, are certainly capable of being competitive in these areas. Um, in every area? Well, look, we have a thousand nuclear tests and they got 45 or a number like that. Um we have a lead that as long as people aren't conducting nuclear tests might be hard to evaporate. But look, you know, build a bigger missile. You want to throw more warheads at us, build a bigger missile. And, and so they have the capability that they have in nuclear weapons. Uh, I think that Ukraine has shown us, though, that you don't know about somebody else's military until you see them in action. And, and there are, just as there are with the Russians, cultural issues. Where are their non-commissioned officers? Yeah. Uh, we haven't had a chance to see where the Chinese are on that. And if this all comes down to Taiwan, when do the Chinese feel good about crossing that strait? And in a deterrent sense, what must we do about declaratory policy in advance? I will say this. I've looked into it. Our allies are not giving up on us, though. They are not scared off by this, as far as I can tell so far, based on their actions, uh, not just on their words. Yeah. So it, as you look, uh, you know, because we're we're now, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to give you the last word. And as you look to the future and the prospects for conflict between the U.S. and, and China, and, and you think about it, what, what message would you leave the Nuclecast audience with thinking about nuclear weapons and this potential U.S.-China conflict? There's a study out from the Belfer Institute, and Graham Allison up at Harvard came up with the term Thucydides trap. Yep, yep going all the way back to the ancient Greek Thucydides and his commentary on the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. 
which was extremely destructive for them. And I think that the question today is, what, and that this is a question that they raise in their study, are we putting ourselves, placing ourselves in a Thucydides trap? Yep. And could we reach a point with the Chinese where just as that last step of embargoing their oil, the Japanese, led directly to Pearl Harbor. How do we keep ourselves from getting to the point where it's not that war is ever inevitable in some abstract sense. It's inevitable between groups of people with certain frames of mind. So how do we avoid that? Uh, I haven't talked. That's one thing. I haven't talked about nuclear arms control. We could talk about that another time. Well, that, that we and will. You, another big fat check. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but how do how do we reengage with the Russians on New Start without the Chinese now? So, last two thoughts. All right. Well, as always, I enjoy. I never uh, don't enjoy a conversation with you. I always enjoy it. So, uh, thanks for coming on Nuclecast, and I want to thank the audience for listening. And we will see you on the next episode. Well, we just did a show with John Swiegel. John is, he's become one of my favorite people because he's funny. He's a great conversationalist at dinner. And I just enjoy talking to him. And so he had sent me this slide deck about, he's giving a talk soon. And it was all about the, the Chinese nuclear modernization. And he mentioned that it's not as impressive as he thought. And then last night, I was reading and I saw this new article by Bill Gertz about everything the Chinese have stolen from us. And I thought, man, we have to have John on the show. So I said, John, can you come on? Can we do with it? Can we do this? And so we did. And I was, you know, I thought it was really good. I enjoyed talking to him about where they're going and what they're looking to do and to get a, a, a sense of the sanity of, of what it is from somebody whom I trust. And so, you know, I think I, I don't know about you, but I think I know what the Chinese are looking to do and I have a good sense of where they're going. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.